Hello there, welcome to episode 31 of True Cult Pop. It's a pop music podcast, people. You know it is by now. That's what it is. That's just what it is. It's me, Stephen Hill. I hope you're very well this week on this show. Therapies Andy Cairns is going to be joining us. I said to him, pick five albums. I held a gun, a metaphorical gun to his head, and he picked five albums with no other information than that. Just pick five albums, Andy. That's what we want you to do. He did. He's going to be joining us later in the show and talking us through those five albums. I went to see Paramore at the O2. I'm going to be talking about that in a little bit. I've been listening to some new music and I've been monologuing, which is kind of what I'm doing right now because, as you can hear, Sam Slight, he's not here. Uh, We had a little chat last week about the fact that Sam was taking a little bit of a hiatus from the podcast for a little moment. So Sam isn't here, so I'm going to be doing like the opening bit on my own. I hope that is all right with you but like I said Andy's going to be coming along very very shortly and that's going to be the main crux of the show if you're going oh this is weird this is take a little bit of getting used to I'll tell you what else you can get used to and how you can get used to just hearing me and my voice is you can go to patreon.com forward slash true pop where you can help us out here on the podcast financially speaking and sign up for a bunch of exclusive content now you probably know the drill by now if you sign up for any amount, you can get to suggest a record or uh, anything, really, a book, a film, whatever you want to do. We normally just do albums, to be perfectly honest. And uh, we'll do a podcast on it if it's a good shout. And usually they have been pretty fucking good shouts. Recently, what with events taking a turn for the way in which they took that turn, it's meant that I've had to kind of... Um, rejig what we would do normally on the patreon page and like i said doing a little bit of monologuing so if you'd like to go over there and sign up because i didn't want to just be like oh shit i don't have anyone to do a podcast with at the moment it's just me uh i didn't want that to like kind of gazump the fact that we should be giving you content if you sign up you know that's the agreement and i want to stick to it so i did a little thing regarding hardcore and a beginner's guide to hardcore. I recently wrote something for loudersound.com, the umbrella um, company for Metal Hammer and Classic Rock and all that. You probably know that. You probably probably already know that. And um, I wrote a thing, five albums which define hardcore. It was really difficult. It was really difficult. And loads of people came on the internet and they told me that I was stupid. And uh, I think they didn't really understand the brief. That's fine. Um, just spat a load of crap on the internet, and it's probably the best thing to do. So that happened, and I decided to basically take that piece and turn it into a kind of expanded edition um, in audio format over on our Patreon page. I did a Beginner's Guide to Hardcore where I talked through the picks that I made, those five albums that I feel define the journey of hardcore as a genre as a sub I need to call it a subgenre. Fuck it, I'm gonna call it a genre because there are subgenres of hardcore, aren't there? Obviously. So I picked five records and um it was a bit of a wrench to be honest. It was difficult, it was really, really hard. It was a hard thing to do to just whittle down forty something years of music into a mere five albums. But I think, you know, I did an alright job and I recorded myself talking you if you sign up to our Patreon page, talking you through that, basically. Chucked in a load of other bands, a load of other references to other things, but basically I sort of tried to justify exactly why I picked those five records and not some of the other records, which, you know, 
people on the internet were telling me I should have had on there. Shouldn't really have Fresh Fruit for Rotten Vegetables by Dead Kennedys now as a list about hardcore because it's a it's a punk album, isn't it? It's punk, and those two things are different. And if you want to know why and how they're different, look at this. Like I say, patreon.com forward slash true cult pop. That is where you can go and sign up. And of course, all the other stuff is there as well. We will be going back to doing classic albums quite soon. I've got you know um like i said plans and people kind of lined up a lot of people want to come to the show it's been very nice you know there are a lot of people who are willing to kind of give up their time and come on and talk about music they really really like so that is good news thanks guys you know who you are i appreciate that right um usually i would ask sam what he's been listening to this week he's not here as we've already established but i still think you will probably want to know what i've been listening to there are a few things that i want to shout out this week we're not going to do full reviews because me just sitting here prattling on about an album by somebody and going really into the kind of depth and da, da, da. i think you do probably need two people to do that so i'm not really going to go into reviews and i'm not going to spend too long before we do um get andy cairns in on the show but there's a few things I think have come out that I've been listening to this week that have been really, really good. Um, first thing I want to talk about is Sugar Horse, the Bristolian lads, the old glum, gothy, post-metally lads. They have done another cover. Now, famously, Sugar Horse uh, like to, I think, basically antagonise their audience, something which I can fully get behind by covering the likes of U2 and Coldplay. They've done something which I think is probably slightly less antagonistic this time by covering the classic Tears of Fears tune, Head Over Heels. It's really, really great. When it first came in, I didn't actually realise... Um, well, I did realise because I knew that they were covering the Tears for Fear song so I knew that it was going to be that song but I was like oh this doesn't sound anything like the original Tears they, they've missed out that big like that that's the big hook and they kind of they left you hanging to wonder whether or not they were going to keep that iconic part of the song and I'm delighted to say that it does come in but it comes in much heavier this is classic like gloomy heavy band take already gloomy 80s synth pop song this is why these songs in this era are so brilliant and why so many metal bands and so many heavy bands are inspired by the likes of tears for fears the cure depeche mode Jack, like whoever like all of those bands because there's some sort of ethereal darkness to those tracks that sound fucking great when it's put with an overdriven guitar and a man shouting and that's essentially what sugar horse have really done but they have just made it feel a little bit more psychedelic a little bit more unusual a little bit more odd and a little bit more weird but actually listening to that song and listening to the lyrics um come through the uh the guttural scream of of ash uh from from the band the front man um you realize just how dark tears of fears are i don't think i ever really truly appreciated just how sort of angry a band Tears of Fears could be. Um, and they are. They're really fucking angry. It's really good. If you're a fan of Sugar Horse, then I think you're obviously going to really like this. If you're a fan of that type of thing, that kind of gloomy, gothy, 80s, post-punk, gone, gnashingly angry and disgusting, I think you will be banging to this. I feel like I'm going to sneeze. Normally I'd better cut that out, but hold on. Hopefully I've just cut out my sneeze there because that wouldn't be great. But I did just do a sneeze. In tribute to Sugar Horse, Head Over Heels is a fucking 
great tune and um they carry on basically just doing stuff that that i really like i appreciate them existing solely to please me so that's really good cheers lads and appreciate that um something else i listened to recently now if you listen to the podcast last week with sam on it at the end of the podcast we reviewed the new ep from any uh e double n y who is a london-based rapper and her new ep is pretty pretty fucking good pretty fucking good i think now when i listened to that record uh, or the EP, I should say, rather than calling it a record. Um, when it ended, as it tends to do on Spotify, something else took its place when it finished, right? And the thing that took its place, I was like, whoa, what is this? This is well good. What is this? And I listened to this one song, and I didn't know who I was listening to at the time. I was just like, this is great. Was like, is it her? Is it still her? It wasn't her. In fact, it was an artist called Yaya Bay. Um, and it was a song from a new EP called Exodus of the North Star, which actually came out on the 24th of March. So it's been out about a month, essentially, right? Now, Yaya Bay is hotly tipped. I think recently um, she got a kind of best new music thing on Pitchfork from the research that I've done. Uh, I didn't know anything about her at all. Um, she is the daughter of Granddaddy IU who was in the 80s hip-hop crew, Juice Crew, um, who uh, actually sadly passed away uh, last year, or was it the year before? I think it was last year. It was right at the very end of, of last year. Um, and, um, yeah, she's done a couple of albums, Remember Your North Star from 2022 and Madison Tapes from 2020. I've actually not listened to either of those because I have just been smashing through this EP. It is pretty quick. You know, it's a six-song EP. Um, I think it's like just over fifteen minutes. It's not. It's not an incredibly absurdly long um, EP by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, it's kind of the perfect little length to be like, oh, I can put that on. I can listen to it. I can enjoy it, and then I can basically press play again, which is kind of what I've been doing for the last few days. Because this EP is fucking ace it's really really good um it sits sort of somewhere between i mean she's described here as an american rhythm and blues musician um i don't think that fully tells a story of exactly what it is that yaya bay does i think there are really cool almost bits of sort of scar revivalism like and that might sound like a bit of a, a weird thing to to say because you know this is this is not real big fish or anything but i think there's a song um uh called on the pisces moon on the album which has a little bit of that kind of it's very summery sort of lilting almost almost like that first lily allen album although not really but just very very it's very very summery very very cool she's got an absolutely brilliant voice but for me the majority of it is when she does this almost kind of like Sade meets something a bit more modern like I don't want to say Janelle Monet because I think Janelle Monet's music is really kind of huge and bombastic but I think there's there's touches of it towards the end where there's a lot more kind of electric electronic flourishes in it which is really really good um there's something called when Saturn returns which starts just with her voice which is amazing and a piano and you can almost hear like it's recorded in such a way in such a kind of old school way it's got a really kind of smoky jazz room um 
club like dark dingy club kind of vibe to the point where you can almost hear whoever it is playing the piano like leaning back and forward on their um their their piano stool and it kind of creaking and that is captured the kind of ambience of the room is captured at the start of that it's really really good so you can go from that kind of very analog sounding thing then to something really really upbeat and then to some sort of almost kind of very ultra futuristic solely stuff uh it's wicked this ep really like really really wicked i like i say i haven't gone into um her album from last year because i kind of discovered this randomly and i thought it was so good that i've just been absolutely pranging the shit out of it like it's well well good so if you are a fan of that kind of soul um you know like I think Sade is a pretty good shout. If you're a fan of that sort of stuff, I think you will um, you'll be banging into this. It's well good. It's called Exodus of the North Star by Yaya yeah Bay. And the other thing I was going to shout out as well is um, I was uh, beavering away, as I tend to do, snuffling around on Bandcamp about a week or so ago. And I came across an article on Bandcamp regarding the renaissance of UK Garage. Now... It's happening, by all accounts. I wasn't really aware of this, but it's happening. UK Garage is a thing that I didn't really pay huge amounts of interest in. I didn't have massive interest in UK Garage back in the day, but it was so big for a little period that it was quite hard to escape. And at the time, I was a bit like, oh, I like drum and bass more, and I'm not, I'm not really sure. Like Some of it is a bit kind of, you know, a bit tinny and a bit weak, um, and maybe a bit like it got a bit, it got a bit commercial, you know, when Craig David comes along. Get a little bit maybe too commercial for me um, at that point. Sound like I'm being, again, like a fucking drum and bass snob. I don't really want to come across like that. So, you know, it's good. It's, it's all good. Like those songs now, I think they they're, they're, they kind of sound like great pop songs from the era to me. And so I have a little bit of like, you know, um, residual nostalgic love for all of that stuff and so i was like oh okay so there's a uk garage renaissance happening is there wicked and one of the things that they pointed towards as a good starting point if you are interested in that as an idea um there is a manchester-based dj called interplanetary criminal and he has done a kind of um mixtape compilation album of all of his favorite new artists coming through from this renaissance in uk garage it's called all through the night open brackets locked on volume four close brackets and it's really good it's really really good it does sound like classic uk garage from that particular era which you know like is probably going to kind of alienate a few people it's probably going to make people go like oh i'm not really sure i think the interplanetary criminal tracks on it the first two are, are really great uh there's a guy called ollie rant who does a song called a love like on it which has got this like really really amazing sort of euphoric um just soaring vocal melody in it which is awesome it's awesome um i actually do kind of mention this later on when i'm talking to andy i've just realized that so when i'm talking to andy this is the thing i'm talking about there's another song uh called jump up by an artist called perception which is really really great as well but yeah interesting to see uh uk garage kind of um making something of a comeback and it's actually pretty fucking good so all through the night locked on volume four by interplanetary criminal you probably may want to know somebody actually suggested to me they were like oh um 
you should talk about stuff that is coming out even if you don't really get a chance to review it so um i'm just sort of looking through what is coming out this week mike dean who has worked with not the referee um by the way because i wondered if it was him for a minute of course it isn't it's um the uh the houston based um record producer in, in hip-hop who's worked with people like ghetto boys and dog pound and tech nine and nate dog and even tupac uh, throughout his career he's got a new album out um which is called 423 don't know what that's referring to there's a live cradle of filth album out i mean i would imagine that'd be pretty interesting i've not had a chance to listen to it yet cradle of filth got a new live album out um if you're a fan of cradle of filth i've actually been listening to cradle of filth quite a lot recently so um yeah we should probably i mean i don't really review live albums but that might be something that'd be worth doing if it has any of danny filth's usual kind of hilarious between song banter i would definitely be interested in that um the damned have a new album out you know i mean i think probably know what you're gonna get with that um the damn do the thing that the damn do and have done for a long time um it's a bit of me in it a kind of gothy punk punk thing um prison by the orb the new album from the orb like the orb were always the the, the most difficult i think to get into from that school of um electronic bands in the early 90s they were often quite hard work but um i remember seeing them at reading and i think it was 1997 they subbed Manic Street Preachers and they were fucking brilliant really really great so quite interested to listen to that I'm very interested to listen to Angels and Queens Part 2 by Gabrielle's which comes out today if you listen to this podcast Part 1 was amazing um, I think both Sam and I had it in our favourite albums of 2020 I'm pretty sure and it's just a brilliant brilliant kind of bluesy soul album um, The National as well First two pages of Frankenstein, that comes out today. If you're listening to this podcast, that comes out. I've spoken about the National quite a lot over the last few years. Um, pretty new to them as a band, but I now am fully, fully in on the National. I'm pretty excited to hear that, actually. I'm pretty excited to hear that. Uh, there's a few other things out here and there. Crown the Empire have an album out. Hammerfall have an album out. Um, probably won't listen to them. Single Mothers. I have an album called Roy coming out. That might be something that we'll investigate at, uh, at a later date as well. I actually got Gaz Jones coming on the show next week to review the new therapy. So we'll probably chuck in a few of those as well. And um, unbelievably, um, I noticed, <laughs> I found out the worst possible way to find out a band has an album out. Reverend and the Makers, um, Heatwave in the Cold North comes out. I've not ever really gone in that much on Reverend in the Makers, but I might check this album out. But I actually found out this album's coming out because I turned my television on Saturday morning and uh, he was on Soccer AM, which just happened to be the channel that I was on. I was like, oh, fucking Soccer AM. You all know what I think of Soccer AM. Not the best. Anyway, so that's some stuff that's coming out this week. Um, I went to see Paramore on Sunday. Right, so I need, before we start, to chat about Block Party, who are a support band. It's the first time I've seen Block Party. Lovely to see Dan from Skinjed playing bass and keyboards, doing a little craft work bit uh, during Block Party set. Um, back in the day, like 10 years ago, Block Party supporting Paramore would have seemed like a really, really odd fit, I think. But actually, it was really, like, I think eventually even though 
the Paramore crowd weren't maybe completely au fait with Block Party's material. I think they got into it towards the end. And I think, you know, did a classic album on Riot Act on Silent Alarm about a year, a year and a bit ago. I mean, I just think that album is absolutely brilliant. And they played one of the best songs from uh, Weekend in the City as well. They played Hunting for Witches, um, which I think is the best. That's fucking brilliant, brilliant song. Um, Kelly's voice still sounds amazing. He's got a really kind of idiosyncratic, instantly recognisable voice. Every sort of little element about Block Pie, even though they take so much from established post-punk forms, I think they've just got their own little kind of unique twist on it. And listening to those songs being played live, songs like Banquet, uh, This Modern Love, Helicopter, Helicopter was fucking great. Like what what a, just, what a massive song. Um, you're sort of reminded of how unusual and odd for that time block party were and um and still sort of remain like you know one of the i think one of the definitive bands of that era and it was fucking great to see a band as big as paramore like really show a lot of love to uh to block party who i was looking at where they played and where they'd headlined over the years and i imagined that they would have played you know at least wembley you know, at least Wembley. But it looks like Block Party never really did a full-blown arena run thing. I think they played Ali Pali a couple of times. Um, certainly, I know in 2018 when they came back, they definitely played Ali Pali because I know somebody went to it. But yeah, it doesn't seem like Block Party ever really kind of fully established themselves as an arena band. Now, maybe some of that is down to the fact that the first album's incredible, the second album is not quite as good, but it's still really good. And then it sort of dropped off a bit. And also, they got thrown in with a lot of that indie landfill stuff but yeah block party were wicked and i would like to spend more time talking about them but ultimately it was all about paramore who again like if you'd have asked me two years ago what do you think of paramore i'd have gone there all right i don't know fucking you know, misery business is pretty catchy we fine yeah they're okay foolishness idiocy on my part um paramore are brilliant they are brilliant. How did how did this pass me by? I don't know. I mean, look, I do, I do know, actually. A lot of it's down to snobbery. A lot of it is down to going, oh, they're a pop punk band and, you know, I don't like that scene and they're a bit like Fallout Boy or they're a bit like All Time Low or they're, they're one of them. And, you know, I will confess that over the course of a 21-song set, you've got a few songs, like, you know, Two songs from Riot, right? That's fine. Obviously, Misery Business was one of them. Um, three songs from Brand New Eyes. Um, they did uh, a cover, um, uh, a cover of Blue Light, which they got um, Kelly from Block Party on to, to do just, just him and Hayley, and it was fucking great. I mean, but ultimately, you know, I've been talking a lot about how much I really, really love the last... Paramore. I think it's absolutely in the conversation for being, you know, come the end of the year, one of my favourite albums of the year thus far. It's one of the albums I've played the most this year. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And I really wanted as much of that stuff as possible. And you get You First into the news as the opening two tracks. And I was like, oh, great. They are going to be playing a fair bit from it. Because, you know, sometimes bands can do a new album go and tour it, play like maybe one or two songs in it. And it's always a bit of a sort of signifier that they're not that sure or they're not that keen. Um, but no, like 
we've got essentially a, like a third of the set really being taken up by that new material. Six songs, six songs from the the that record. Crave Liar, Run Out of Time, The News, This Is Why, You First. This Is Why, which closed the whole show, was just fucking, it's so good, so good. Like just an absolute banger. Um, and that they just look like they are the, the consummate kind of modern pop artists i think paramore like they make really interesting very very heartfelt very honest tunes uh i think Haley williams is a super like i mean god it fucking obvious to say it really now i feel a bit dumb that i'm just being like oh did you know like, of course you know Haley williams is a superstar so much charisma such a great voice such an amazing command of 20,000 people who were going bonkers from the second they stepped foot on stage. The set was sleek, all like red and then kind of pastel colours. They look great. They just look cool. They just look like a flamboyant but also really relatable superstar pop act. And... When you got to something like um, Misery, well, well, specifically when you got to Misery Business and she got three of the fans up on stage to sing the like end bit, which is, you know, a trick that many, many, many artists have employed over the years, right? I mean, Green Day, I've been doing that a lot. I know they get the geezer to play the guitar or somebody to play the guitar. But like, it is really, really cool when you get those people up and they are they are really excited. And I've seen bands get people up and those people are so excited and they're running around taking stuff. And the band are a bit like, yeah, 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 okay, come on, like fucking grab the mic, do your thing and fuck off, basically. None of that with Paramore at all. Like Hayley Williams was fucking delighted, like, jumping around like she was in a rock club with like three of her mates to her own song. It was really, really cool. Like the, just the set list itself like i say a lot of new stuff which i thought was great but even when they kind of quote unquote reclaimed some of the older material which i am sort of less less interested in i guess i'm kind of less interested in that stuff um it's not like the only exception which on record i think is maybe a bit schmaltzy took on a whole new life uh, in the o2 and it just sounded great and you know i think if, if i had one criticism don't get the drummer up to do his song from his new band. Like they got the drummer up to sing a song called Baby by his band Half Noise. And you're like, yeah, this is the difference between someone who can command a crowd of 20,000 people and a bloke who can hit things quite hard in the correct rhythm. And uh, it, it, it wasn't great. But that would be literally, literally my only complaint of what was actually just a fucking brilliant night oh no my only other complaint and it's not even really a complaint it's actually it's me being really nice actually because um shout out to my mate ryan uh who works there too who sorted me out with really brilliant tickets like i was sat side stage essentially not side stage like side stage wanker but like in the seats by the side of the stage but on the front row right and when parable came on everyone stood up i stood up and then looked behind me and there was a young lady who was probably, um, you know, was maybe like four foot ten. And I went, can you, and I'm six foot four. And she went, 
sort of looked at me a bit sad and I went can you see and she was like no I can't see and I, was, I literally stood with my whole back was just in the way she wouldn't be able to see anything so I said oh, I'll sit down so I sat down for the whole gig my leg was jiggling around for the entire night um, but I didn't get to experience quite the dance party that everybody else did because I was having to just do it um, with uh, jiggly legs on my seat but hey you know I'm a nice guy so whatever I did struggle I tell you what when they when they started playing um, ain't it fun and hard times I was like I'm not going to be able to sit down during this <sighs> but I did but I did so anyway like Paramore absolutely fucking great and I cannot believe I cannot believe I was dopey enough to sleep on them for so many years although I feel like that that's true in one way I feel like we've kind of we've met in the middle because They've done something which I like more uh, over the last couple of records and um, and I've been willing to listen. So I feel like this is, a, this is a mutual meeting in the middle of the pair of us. So um, thanks Paramore. Thanks very much. It was really, really wicked. Uh, something which is not wicked at all is the news that came out uh, just a few days ago as we record or as I say we I keep saying we it's just me isn't it um Brixton Academy may be permanently closed now we're all aware of what happened um at the end of last year at Brixton Academy and the kind of horrible tragic events um at the uh, Asaki gig um it's meant that lots and lots and lots of bands have been moved to various different venues for you know the whole year so far and that's understandable while this has all been you know kind of sorted out um but there's i i call me naive call me stupid call me a dreamer but i kind of felt like this would be sorted out i imagined it would be slap on the wrist more than a slap on the wrist you know a big kind of something would have to happen within the venue but it would get sorted out and at some point in the next few months it was going to open up and we'd be going back to gigs at Brixton Academy um maybe not maybe not um the Met told the BBC or spokesperson for the Met told the BBC after um they did a kind of uh you know they've been doing the um the investigation into what happened on monday the 16th of january the license of brixton o2 academy was suspended for three months on the 14th of april the met police submitted an application for a review of premises license to lambeth council and will be seeking a revocation of the license this matter will be decided at a future council subcommittee hearing on a date to be confirmed um amg who own brixton academy have said they fully cooperated cooperated with the metropolitan police um since the event at Brixton and they have presented detailed proposals that they believe will be uh, enable the venue to reopen safety uh, safely I should say not safety um, it's hard to know exactly what this means I mean is Brixton Academy as a room as a venue inherently unsafe I think that's surely the question here is that building inherently hazardous having been to Brixton Academy multiple times numerous times over the years 
the last time I went, in fact, I think was to see the prodigy last June, July time. And it was it was so hot and it was so crushed and it was so like unbearable. It was it was a it was a saga. Anyone the people who went will will remember like it was it was hard. Like people were fainting on the way out and stuff. And I do remember thinking to myself, feels like Brixton is it's the first time I've been and I thought this is dangerously oversold. This actually feels like this has been oversold to the point where like it's it's not cool. Like it's pretty fucking difficult. My mate had to go out halfway through and go in and he went to the very, very back of the room, went outside, I was like, I just couldn't fucking breathe and I was freaking out. And there were people lying like covered in sweat, lying on the floor in the foyer. And I remember thinking something's gone a bit wrong here. And when I think back, you know, knowing now what happened, when I think back um, to that night, it sends a bit of a sort of shiver down my spine because it feels like somebody somewhere has been doing something incorrectly at Brixton Academy. And then, you know, we know what happened in December last year. I don't know how connected those two things are. Um, but I feel like it's a venue maybe that's been treading water and um, been a little bit lax for some time. But it still begs the question, is it inherently unsafe as a building? And I don't think it is. I don't think it is un inherently unsafe. It, to me, it's one of the most... Um, it's got more exits and it's got more ways of getting out and more visibility throughout the room um, than many other venues in London. I mean, put it this way. If in the unthinkable and unlikely event of a fire I would much rather be in Brixton than I would be in the roundhouse I don't know if any of you have, or, or Coco right so you know to me I think to take the license away from the people who were in control of Brixton Academy that feels fine to take it away completely and to just not have it I'm not so sure about that I think that's um it's just such a shame because it's such a hugely iconic venue that, you know, over the last, since it kind of reopened in the mid 80s, you know, there have been so many famous, iconic gigs that happen there. And it's the same sort of thing with the Astoria, you know, the Astoria, I go on about all the time, it got closed down for no reason, for no reason. Um, and it sucks. And I think it's just another example of... Um, uh, people of what's going on as a kind of London sort of losing its uh, identity around the kind of the culture of um, the gentrification of and the commodification of um, of the capital city is is a real shame. I think I think it's losing a lot of its personality, and I don't mean that in a kind of Nigel Farage way. Like, you know, like Sadiq Khan's made it. I don't mean that at all. I do not mean that at all. I'm talking about, um, it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm talking more about kind of uh, corporate interests and making London look shiny and pretty um, rather than it having 
quirky little odds bits of his personality I mean you only need to go up to Tottenham Court Road now think about what it was like in the 90s and then look at it now and it's just just not the same at all um, it's just not the same anyway that's another like old man yells at cloud thing but I do think that for the Brixton Academy to be just lay dormant again would be I think it would be really really sad I mean obviously it's already a tragedy um, and that <sighs> In the, in the grand scheme of things, obviously that is far worse than like, oh, I don't get to go to gigs, I've got to go to the Hammersmith Apollo instead. Like, yeah. But um, I was quite surprised. I was genuinely quite surprised to see that that was, uh, that was what was happening. So anyway, let's talk about something else. Let's bring someone else in because you've been listening to me talking for nearly 40 odd minutes now. I spoke to Andy Cairns from Therapy again. He's been on the podcast before. He was lovely coming on um, and talking about football. It was great. But um, really, we want to talk to Andy about music because that's the thing in it. They've been releasing great, great records for over over three decades now, Therapy. And they have another one coming next week. Comes out on the 5th of May. Hard, cold fire. I call it cold, hard fire. I mean, I think that makes more sense anyway but you know it just rolls off the tongue a little bit easier in my head i don't know why but anyway that album is coming out so we wanted to talk to andy you know just about music that he likes music that he cares about music that he is interested in and um and all of that good stuff so i said to him andy five albums can you give us five albums and he came back with five albums and we chatted about them and that's what you're about to hear he's back Andy Kens is back with us. Andy, how are you, my friend? I'm good, Stephen. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you, mate. Very good. Just saying, I've been listening to a couple of new records that you've put out. So obviously, we have a new therapy album, your 16th studio album, Hard Cold Fire. We're going to be reviewing that on the show next week. But just as a little tease of it, um, I've heard it. I mean, some of you might already know what I think about it if you've bought Metal Hammer, because I think my review has gone in already. But sort of feels to me like a bit of a, a victory lap of I can never quite pinpoint exactly what you guys sound like if someone said explain what therapy sound like I wouldn't have one exact thing to go to but this sort of feels like a, a victory lap of all your best stuff in a lot of ways I think is that fair yeah we describe it as empathetic uh melodic rock music on this album and the reason of that is we, we actually wrote about 24 to 26 songs during lockdown and we decided we needed a direction because therapy albums always have a theme. Mm. And this one we thought, well, we've got a lot of these really short, punchy, melodic songs, and we've got some of these kind of meandering, melancholy things that go off into experimentalism, like previous albums we've done. Mm. And we decided post-COVID and post-lockdown that we wanted to give people something with a bit of energy and an upbeat. So we chose the latter. Um, we got Chris Sheldon involved, and he he sat down with us and he agreed the 10 songs that we chose the one that ended up on the album and they they're kind of they're very direct they're very focused they're very melodic there's you know, still a bit of that sadness and melancholy but it's what we wanted to achieve and also we wanted to have a little bit of empathy in the songs as well some of the other ones we left out were a bit more bitter mm. and we kept we kept them off for a later date okay cool yeah well like i say we'll speak about that next week on the podcast properly but um yeah it's uh <sighs> 
I feel like I say that. I feel like every couple of years you guys release an album, and every couple of years I go, it's another, it's a brilliant therapy album. Stop going about trouble gum. Listen to this, and <laughs> people go, oh yeah, yeah, I will, I will, I will. And then within sort of twelve months, they go, oh yeah, love trouble gum. And it's like, come on, man, come on. Does that get frustrating for you at all? You know what? I'm just after all these years, after thirty three years doing this, I'm grateful that we have a bloody trouble gum. You know? <laughs> yeah, fair, It'd be a lot okay. worse if we didn't. You know, I mean, at least it's a bit like Lemmy with the Ace of Spades. He, someone once asked him, "Did he never get sick of being asked about it?" And he said, "At least we have the Ace of Spades." Yeah, and it's a bit like I mean, I'm, I'm very proud of that record, but people are coming around a little bit. It's not as much trouble gum centric as it was, but you know, I'm so glad that we have that. You know, that'll always be there. Hopefully after I'm gone as well. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think there is, I mean, as we, we've spoken recently on this show about various albums you've done, another one you've done, before we get into your picks for the five albums that we're going to talk about, I just really want to talk about Supercluster by Jaw. So that's coming as well. So that's your kind of, um, again, it feels like stuff that you've, that we're probably going to be talk, talking about and, and chatting about uh, a little bit on this podcast, but the Jaw album is a much I guess a nastiest, certainly sonically, a much nastier sounding record. Um, where did all that come from? How did this sort of project start? And what's the sort of elevator pitch for this band? Yeah, well, the elevator pitch is grayscale industrial noise rock. That's what it is. Uh, how it came about was, um, you know, as people know that like therapy, I listen to new music all the time and mm -hmm. quite, I'm quite vocal about it. And there was an album that's going to be, we'll be talking about soon, called Know You by Rainbow Grave that I was eulogizing about to various outlets that would listen to me. Yeah. And that's on God or Known Records. It's run by Jason Stoll. It used to be in Mugstar. He's now in Clamp, Sex, Sex Swing, all this kind of stuff. And a lot of his records are recorded at Bear Bites Horse, which is Wayne Adams. Wayne Adams is one half of Pet Brick with Igor Cavalera. He's also in a, a noise band called Big Lad. Um, and Jason got in touch with me out of the blue and said, oh, I'm really, really pleased that you love the Rainbow Grave record. Let me know if there's anything we can do for you. And then I got a call from one day going, I'm just sitting here with Wayne Adams. Would you be up for making a record? Um, and I said, well, what's it about? Get in touch. So I came down and met them at Wayne's studio in East London. He said, I've always been a fan of Godflesh. I've always been a fan of Ministry, early typo negative. I kind of want to make an industrial record. And I thought, well, that way I can. Uh, there's a band I love, a cross-punk band from Portland called Nuclear Blast Suntan. I like them. I like Helios Creed. So we said, let's make a record with a basically... There's no holes barred. You can make as much noise as you want. And then we got Adam Betson, who's a phenomenal drummer, who drums with Square Pusher and Goldie and people like that. Yeah, really and amazing. He, and he said, you know what? I'm going to go full lightning bolt on this. Um, and we did it. I recorded the guitars in two days, did the vocals in two days. Various people dropped in and out. The whole thing was done really quickly. Um, it was really exciting and it was good fun. I'm so glad I was involved with the project. It was brilliant to do. Are you planning on touring that at all? Is that going to be a, a more? Is that going to be a kind of thing that you can do alongside therapy on a? I don't want to say a full time basis, but is it going to be something you reckon you'll dip in and out of more, or is it just kind of a one and done? Here it is, and enjoy that, and it's been fun, and see you later, kind of thing. Well, it's something we like to do, but the thing is, we had to cancel two gigs we had already next week. Um, because we were meant to play in Leeds in London, but I had a lot of promo commitments from therapy. Adam is a solo project called Colossal Squid, and Wayne is currently mixing the Green Lung album. Right. Um, so, like, we had to, we just realized we had to cancel those. So, those are now rescheduled. So, in September, we'll be doing, I think, uh, London, Leeds, Bristol, and A, another city. But uh, yeah, we've talked about maybe making another record and definitely going on tour. But I think when you've got four people, I mean, Adam Betts, he also drums for, for Pulp as well. 
He's, you know, so he's in four or five projects. Jason runs God on Known Records, which two or three releases out every month. And Wayne's a busy producer and studio owner. But yeah, it was good fun doing it. So, I mean, if we can keep it where it's a really good fun and easy enough to do and it doesn't step on anyone's day jobs, then that'll be good. I didn't know Adam was in Pulp. Yeah, he drums in Pulp. Okay, he's a percussionist in Pulp. He drums for Jarvis Cocker. When Jarvis Cocker goes out slow, uh, solo, Adam Betts is a drummer and um, Pulp are getting together and, and Adam's a percussionist for them. Yeah, I'm going to pulp at Finsbury Park. I didn't know that at all. That's yeah. amazing. Wow. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. I mean, the the actual, I, I like, it was, it's one of those things, you know, when you see sort of super groups or quote unquote super groups or people were getting together and sometimes you go and they go, oh, it's just a really, really heavy record or whatever. And it's just really, really different. And you go, all right, well, we'll see, won't we? Because, I mean, I think I've been talking about another kind of group of the same, a similar thing recently. And I, I said to one of the members, like, it's like when I think one of the guys from My Chemical Romance went, "We're doing a, I'm doing a grindcore band," and then it was like 30 seconds in, melodic singing, and you're like, yeah. "Well, you know, you're just playing a bit fast, mate." But yeah. this is this is really, really, really fucking heavy and horrible sounding. This record, in the nicest possible way, I have to say. So yeah, no, um, yeah, it's good, good to do something outside the, the normal thing for therapy. Yeah, mm, yeah, it's great. Um, anyway, Andy, uh, we have got you on to talk about five records i didn't give you any other information than that it was just like pick five records whatever you want to talk about just five records no brief no context uh how hard was that to just go oh i just have to pick five records did you kind of agonize over it or was it quite easy well it's always it's always hard to pick five records whenever you're as vociferous as the likes of we are you know about the music we can we consume and listen to and enjoy and then I thought, right, what path am I going to take? And I've realized my favorite records are always records that take you on a journey. Mm. And, you know, I don't mean in a concept album way, but I mean, as in if I, if I like a record from the music, from the production, from the aesthetics of the record, when I put on my headphones, I like the way, I, I can't listen to one track. I have to listen to the whole thing. So I thought I'd pick five of those. I mean, like, ones that are left out actually are important. Big Black's Atomizer. Black Sabbath's first album, Killing Joke's first album, Billie Eilish, When We All Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go, Spider-Land by Slint, The Cure Pornography, Manic's The Holy Bible, Joni Mitchell Blue, Funkadelic, Free Your Mind, Your Ass Will Follow. These are all records that if I put on the headphones, I can't listen to certain tracks on their own. So that's, I picked five of those just that I thought of, of kind of some impact in my life some way. Mm, great picks. I mean, even of the five that you haven't mentioned, those are some amazing, amazing, again, like some of my absolute favorite albums and the albums i mean, I mean it, people who've heard this podcast a bunch of times before will know how mental i go for the holy bible by the manics for example uh or blue by Joni mitchell like yeah fucking incredible and that first killing joke album yeah great so if that's the ones that didn't make it we're gonna have five incredibly strong ones here i think so let's kick us off um the first album you've picked is the second album from manchester post-punk icons joy division closer released on the 18th of July, 1980, I think roughly two months after. It was actually death. Unknown Pleasures I chose. Oh, was it? Oh, sorry. Somebody sent me, uh, obviously this is a, a little bit, I thought you picked, I thought you picked closer. That's fine. I was about to ask you. And my first question was going to be, sorry, I didn't realize, I thought you picked closer. Um, my first question was actually going to be, uh, what's made you pick closer over Unknown Pleasures, which is the one that I think most people consider to be the, you know, the most influential one. But you have, picked unknown pleasures i mean joy division obviously uh a big influence on most bands from that era uh yeah talk to us about 
what it was that made Joy Division so special to you? Well, Joy Division came at an important point in time in my life when I was, you know, I first discovered music when I was young uh, and didn't really buy records, but I used to love because of the age I am. I was born in 1965. I remember seeing David Boy T-Rex and The Sweet on top of the pops and they were all wearing glam gear and they looked like aliens and I loved all that. So my mum my bought me records by The Sweet and stuff like that. But the first time that I got into buying my own records and getting the paper around that was punk. You know, big uh, Buzzcocks was the first record I ever bought. And I was into Buzzcocks, Clash, Stiff Little Fingers, Rudy, Outcast. There was a big Ulster punk scene. Yeah. But so that was all about, you know, it was kind of like it was sort of melodic. It was kind of sing along. It was speeded up Chuck Berry riffs. It was exciting. It was important. But then I I've also found whenever the time Unknown Pleasures came along, it started to really get into literature. I'd gone to secondary school. It started, I was doing English O level. I got really, and that, that was one of the few subjects that really, really sparked me was English literature, like T.S. Eliot and Samuel Beckett, uh, people like that. And when Joy Division came along, it started buying music papers as well at this point in time. So like NME was, um, was going at the time. When I read about Joy Division, it was one of the bands where it wasn't just about wearing the T-shirt and listening to the music like it was with The Clash and The Dam and The Buzzcocks and Stiff Little Fingers. Uh, Ian Curtis would mention The Sound and The Fury. And it would be okay. That's who's that by and by Faulkner. I'd go and say to my English teacher, like, uh, have you ever heard of the Sun and the Fury? Oh, yeah, it's William Faulkner. So I'd go and buy the book, or I wouldn't buy it, and I'd rent it at the library. And he would mention other people, um, JG Ballard, the atrocity mm -hmm. exhibition. So I'd go and read JG Ballard. So I was getting a bit of an education. And at this point in time, I'd also bought a bass guitar, like a really cheap bass guitar, because I thought Hookie was really cool. So that was probably the first album I can ever actually remember playing along to as a kid. You know, people that are musicians say I used to play on Black Sabbath or the Pistols. It was unknown pleasures for me, and I was kind of able to work out some, not all of them, obviously, but at 14 years of age, you could pick up the bass, and I thought Hookie looked great. I thought his bass, the Rickenbacker, was brilliant. So I got really immersed in this record. I mean, everything, and uh, it just went from there. It's just such an odd sounding, I think even listening to it today, that first time, I mean, you know, obviously I would sort of thought we was prepped to talk about closer, but obviously I've listened to Unknown Pleasures just as many times. And I think the, the thing that I was going to say is I feel like Unknown Pleasures is certainly, like I do as a record prefer closer personally. I mean, I wasn't there to experience the, the, these albums coming out at the time. It's only kind of in the aftermath of them that, I've listened to them and I, and I love, you know, the kind of early, even pre kind of unknown pleasures, um, joy division stuff, I think is amazing when they are much more kind of acerbic straight ahead punk band, but it's those drums and that bass and the weird guitar and just everything about unknown pleasures feels like nothing else that I can really pinpoint prior to that. Like every kind of collectively, it sounds weird. But even each individual element, I mean, I think, you know, the, the way in which Martin Hannett made them record those drums, for example, which just sounds like unbelievably painstaking, hellish thing to go through. But the result of it is, I mean, it's hard to kind of, it's hard to wonder what so many, so much music would have sounded like without the influence of, I think, that particular album going forward because it's just such a it's such a weird record and now I think you know we're used to hearing Interpol or you know Block Party or even Idols or whatever those kind of bands doing that sort of thing that kind of beat but 
I can't really, other than going to kind of craft work and more synthy stuff, I can't really remember a guitar band rhythmically sounding like the stuff that you hear on Unknown Pleasures. It's it's really it's just a weird sounding record. It still sounds weird to me. No, you're right. It's the, and it was a, sort of the birth of punk, Pugs Punk, because I think at that point in time, my ears had become attuned, as I say, to punk rock. So it was wall of sound guitars, mm. Chuck Berry riffs, and just a huge wall of guitars and vocals kind of on top with kind of explosive drums. But the very first time I heard Unknown Pleasures, it was, it was quite arresting. It was a shock because I used to listen to all my music with my headphones on in the dark in my room, as, as many a teenage boy did. And the first time I listened to it, I, I did think it sounded, this sounds really strange because the separation between all the instruments, there's a democracy and all that. You can hear every single instrument and what yeah, they're yeah. doing. And that was, it was also very monochrome. It sounded monochrome. And I, as I say, I used to, I lived in, lived in a housing estate uh, just outside Belfast, in a place called Ballyclare. And I'm, whenever I'm sitting in my chair looking out my window, all I could see was grey houses and a grey road. And the weather was usually shit. And there was a stone quarry across the road from the estate. So everyone was covered in this patina of dust. So it was like someone young that was discovered themselves. That was a perfect soundtrack. And it's like to listen to it and then look at the sky and to hear all these echoes. It was very, very um, redolent of what growing up in Northern Ireland was like in the 70s too. There were so many bomb buildings. So like if you went into the city centre, there was desolation. And then you would go home and listen to Joy Division. And it seemed to echo that desolation. There was something about it. And it did take me a little while to get my head around the sound of it because I was so used to listening to Buzzcocks, Damned, Clash, different figures that this was something else. But it was a gateway for me. It was a gateway into literature. It was also a gateway for me into things like craft work that you mentioned, like dub records. Someone said, oh, the, the bass is very like dub, like um, mm. you should check some of that out. But, you know, it's just it was just the sound of the actual record itself. It was icy, um, so, so many soundscapes going on. Um, all the backwards sampling, you know what I mean? They did. They didn't do it in the way that the Beatles did. They did it in a way that was quite unnerving as well. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a very very unsettling. I think Joy Division. It's weird when when people talk about heavy music, and we'll talk about actually heavy music, like kind of sonically heavy music. I think a, quite a lot of people would probably go, "Oh, Joy Division aren't a heavy band," but I think Joy Division are like crushingly heavy way heavier than some death on yeah the day of the lords new dawn fades yeah, it get like, any heavier than those two tunes it doesn't yeah. it's not all about you know, heavy isn't it about i'm tuned to a mm -hmm. and you know it's it's not i mean towns van zandt can make heavy records mm -hmm. you know it's like um some of the best pop records are very very heavy it's about an attitude and it's about kind of how it makes you feel and that was just but there's also a euphoria i mean i have to counter that with saying from my point of view as a young man, I, after I listened to Joy Division, I didn't feel suicidal. I felt euphoric. I think there was an empathy, a feeling there with it. Um, I would I would be really down as you are when you're 14. You, you've enough all the weight of the world's on your shoulder and you're feeling sorry for yourself. But I would go and listen to Unknown Pleasures and I'd feel lifted after it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, obviously the, the, the big, I guess one of, if not the biggest song on it is She's Lost Control. And that is obviously Ian Curtis's... Um, empathetic side coming out you know seeing this girl who had epilepsy which obviously he had as well and seeing the kind of struggle and suffering that she goes through and trying to put to sort of empathize that into a song i mean it's a again ian kurt is like such a, a an unusual um voice and unusual presence i mean just everything about him is is just so different and i think it's that for everything about joy division which is brilliant musically i do think you know i, I can obviously again you know i was 
well I wasn't even born when this record came out but I can see why people would have gravitated towards somebody like Ian Curtis because yeah. he's just he's not he doesn't like you say he doesn't feel like a rock star but he does feel like someone who you just kind of like kind of like maybe even more so than what Kurt Cobain had that thing where you just go I kind of feel like I need to gravitate towards this person because I sort of feel like there is similarities between us you know and, and Ian Curtis just felt like a very normal empathetic guy who people just seem to really cling to do you were you kind of around and aware for the I guess the kind of cult of Ian Curtis and you know the kind of when he died and stuff like what do you remember all of that stuff happening yeah I remember exactly when when he died I was standing like so waiting to go into my history class uh in school and a guy called John Gray that was into punk come up to me and said Ian Curtis has died. And I think he obviously died the night before, you know, but then there was no internet or anything like that, so he yeah. died the next day. And I remember thinking, oh, God, really? And um, then later on, it did make the news. But I think with him, it was a quotidian side of him. I think it's because he, he was from Manchester. He was working class. And looking back on it now, there's nothing really theat- What What made him such a brilliant and influential an inspiring person for me was he wasn't theatrical. You know, it, it was like all seemed to come just from within. And it was, if you look at a line like, um, where will it end? Like the way he sings it, isn't it? If that could be, so many of the lines he sings in this album, if it was done in a progressive rock band, it would sound like Toast of London. You know what I mean? And it, <laughs> and it doesn't, he just, he kind of delivers it. It's, it's like almost, um, it's, he does it with a sideways glance. It's like he's kind of in a resigned fashion. It's not self-pitying, but it's so, so powerful. And his voice, and it makes a lot of sense when you hear that Tony Wilson played him Sinatra records to try yeah. ideas. Because I always thought whenever I developed my musical taste a bit long, a bit more, and someone said to me, oh, Ian Curtis, he's just like singing like Iggy Pop on The Idiot. And I can see that. I mean, that's famously the record he was listening to when he took his own life. But I think it's more like Sinatra. Because it's more the phrasing. If you listen to something like in the wee small hours and some of those early Sinatra records, it's the kind of delivery. And that's Tony Wilson said, give him those records and said, listen to this. And it makes sense because Sinatra wasn't theatrical. Sinatra was like kind of the wise guy on the street. Yeah. And that, that makes a lot more sense when you find that out. Yeah, it does. Yeah. I mean, it's it's something that I'd sort of heard and not really kind of thought that much about, but it's, it's definitely true. But yeah, I mean, what a great band. Just really quickly on Closer, for me, it's, I would say, like I say, even though I can see how Unknown Pleasures is a more unique and more influential record, I think Closer is the superior record of the two. How do you feel about that, Andy? I think the songs on Closer are better. I think I think the the arrangements and the instrumentation on, on Closer are better. And to a certain extent, the lyrics are better. I think it's just where Unknown Pleasures hit me at a certain time in my life that it takes precedent. Yeah. You know, so if I was to put, I mean, after I talked to you, know, if I was to stick on closer, i go, oh, my God, my God, this is amazing. Because it was, it was, I mean, I lived by those records. But I think it's just what it means at a certain point in my life. It was to say, gateway. it went from, it took me away from kind of the more traditional punk into the possibilities of punk. Mm, okay. Um, so there, yeah, there you go. Unknown Pleasures by Joy Division is your first pick. Let's move on to, I hope I've got the right album this time. I think I have. Untrue by Burial. That's the one, right? Yes. That's, that's right. Good. Yeah. yeah. So um, William Bevan, aka Burial, released on the 5th of November 2007. It's the second studio album from him. Uh, I, as far as I've always been aware of you 
as uh, as a person and as therapy as a band and as an artist um i've known that you've kind of you rep for electronic music mm-hmm. for kind of as long as i can remember really um i think i've heard you talking about pop elite itself apex twin you know you mentioned square pusher again i think i've heard you mention that back in the 90s and whatever um but where did your kind of relationship with electronic music come in um and what's the sort of thing that an electronic artist needs to do to get you interested in them what's your kind of favorite flavor of that well with electronic music i was always into it since i kind of got into craft work whenever i was at school everyone was ranting and raving about craft work and i think a good friend of mine that had kind of moved on from punk when you know i was into joy division he had kind of moved on to electronic music he'd said to me get trans europe express and i got it and couldn't stop playing it so the way that it would work with therapy would be whenever we started the band the very first single we ever did was called me abstract which is basically because me and Fife have been listening to loads of Belgian new beat. Mm. And I've been on holiday in Amsterdam of all places in Holland and in a record store, got the best of new beat. And I took it home and it was quite an intriguing cover. It was a naked man painted in red on this black cover. It got Lords of Acid and, and all these people on it and erotic dissidents. And Fife was going, this is amazing. Some of these drum beats are just brilliant. So he kind of came up with this, the, the beat for me abstract is his idea of a new beat. And then I was trying to play it almost like a synth line on the guitar, which ends up like this kind of metallic guitar thing. Yeah. So we would never ever, none of us ever brought in a keyboard and went, right, let's do some electronica because yeah. that's not our background, but we would try and replicate it on our own instruments organically. Mm. And um, the second point of the question is my way into burial and what I like about this is the vocal science is what caught me. Um, I've never heard anyone that makes electronic records do this with the vocals. Because, you know, he makes, uh, if you look at the opening track on this, Archangel, he's got this amazing UK garage beat that sound like, it sounds like it's recorded five or six streets away through an open window. And then he's got this truly unbelievable vocal melody. And then when you source where the melody is from and how he's, it doesn't sound anything like he's made it sound on the record. You know, it sounds like a kind of ordinary R&B vocal, but he's taken it from a major key into a minor key and to fit it in with the music. And all throughout this record, there's these little vocal samples, whether they're talking or whether they're from movies or whether they're R&B singers that he's kind of time stretched and pitch shifted to make it fit his kind of like, his kind of sad vision, if for want of a better word. And that was kind of what first got me. I mean, like I had his first album uh, because I read a, re- a review in The Guardian of all things by Kitty Empire that said it was like, I think it was The Guardian, that it was like, it was su- such a London album but it was a very, very fat bass and loads of crackle, final crackle. It said it was like the, the gust that a tube train leaves when it goes past you, that warm gust of air. Mm. And I knew exactly what the journalist meant when she said that. So I went and got the first album, thought it was great. But I, I thought it was a lot more dubby and a lot more, but whenever I got on true, just with the vocals on that are just incredible. That's what really, really did it for me, the vocals on it. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think Pitchfork said it was the most important electronic album of the decade when it came out. And it's funny to see um, years later the sort of influence or, or what they kind of credit the influence of this record is, which, you know, I've seen, I was, I was reading up on a, a bit of stuff about it and it was going, oh, you know, such a kind of great precursor to dubstep and stuff. And when you think of, I guess, that you know, again, something else we've spoken about in this podcast before, um, the kind of Americanization of drum and bass and dubstep turn into this kind of you know monster energy drink chugging step, yeah. <laughs> yeah like very sort of upbeat very shiny very, and you just think well this is not that 
you know yeah. the, the thing i love about you know the stuff i like the, the drum and bass albums that i love that kind of skittering something like ronnie like ronnie size represent new forms which i absolutely love and i think this kind of that kind of warp records thing from the late 90s the kind of uncle james lavelle thing oh, yeah. going, going into like like you say this really dark almost industrial really claustrophobic really quite kind of dusky feeling record but with these incredible like euphoric vocals on it th that is definitely for me the the high point I, th I think all the points in this record uh where you get those kind of deep dark stalking beats and then those beautiful soaring melodic parks parts i mean you mentioned archangel um ghost hardware etched head plate which i think might be my favorite song on it raver all of those songs just fucking brilliant and like best music for me is about dynamics and getting that dynamic range and marrying that darkness with like you so i'm really glad you mentioned the sort of the vocal parts in this because you know i hadn't listened to this record for about 10 15 years i remember do remember had a mate who was into it really really into it at the time i hadn't listened to it for years i think it's aged incredibly and like you say they feel like they feel weird and they feel dark but they feel like songs because those melodies are just so brilliant yeah and that's what, and it's like also I like the little incidentals, the ambient feels like there's like a in McDonald's and endorphin. Um and, and your dog shelter, they're they're kinda like I think he sampled Brian Eno for one of them, but there's like Brian Eno, a bit like when the AFX twin goes ambient. Mm. It's perfect music for sitting on, on the top of a London bus in the rain with your headphones in. It's just perfect. And, but it's got this sad warmth is the only way I can put it that runs through the whole record. And, and again, it's a bit like it's back to Unknown Pleasures and some of the other records I mentioned earlier, like Spiderland by Slint or, um, or Atomizer by Killing Joke. You know, if you listen to these records and you put on your headphones, it it takes you to a certain space. And I think Burial's record to me, I mean, I've played it to metal friends of mine and they've kind of gone, oh, I like this because they thought, what is it, UK Garage dubstep now? But it's like, if you like Black Sabbath's first album, this is like an electronic version of Black Sabbath's first album, I think, in a way. You know, I mean? yeah, yeah, you know, no, you're, you're quite right. Yeah, again, you know, um, as you're saying that, yeah, talking about kind of how Joy Division conjures, you know, I guess kind of industrial rubble and grey skies in a, you know, kind of late 70s inner city. This does feel like, yeah, like you say, I guess sitting on the top of a bus going round, you know, east london in Lambeth, yeah, in, yeah in november and it's absolutely pissing down it's a great record and i think you know it's 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 just interesting when i look at when it, when i was looking at it and going oh it's such a precursor to to you know to dubstep and stuff and i think oh, dubstep just feels like you know you think of steve a i mean I interviewed Steve Aoki and he's a lovely man but he was quite sort of like hey bro oh bro and i think well <laughs> how do those two things relate i don't really think they do particularly it's sort of funny how those things get um i don't use the word co-opted because last time we talked about a drum and bass record and i was like it's been co-opted a lot of people were like oh fucking shut up you snob but <laughs> but um but it is funny to see that that feels that, that people are saying this is an in, a, a sort of an influence to something which it's just way more kind of happy and mainstream and poppy do you know what i mean yeah well the, the original Dub, I mean, I, I don't really think he's strictly dubstep. I mean, the first dubstep I heard was Digital Mystics and Mala, and it was all descended from LB, who mm. had these kind of really clicky, blocky garage beats, but with really, really dark riffs. 
And I and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't around. I didn't go to forward or any of those clubs, but I know people that have been and they said that the original dubstep clubs, it was barely lit. It was a sweaty room, usually in a basement. It was chest plate rattling sound systems. And it was just people with their hoods up, rocking back and forward, which to me sounds amazing. Do you know what I mean? That wasn't yeah. like kind of energy drink fueled bros. You know what I mean? Yeah. Kind of sunglasses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. No, yeah. You're quite right. I think it's actually, I mean, I don't know if you, how much attention you pay to it, but I was looking on, I was looking on Bandcamp the other day and there's the, the UK garage revival of that kind of old school sound. I think that is something which is uh, gathering at pace um at the moment and um yeah i was listening to oh my god i can't remember the guy who i was listening to who was really good but did remind me of that kind of um you know late 90s uh underground garage thing and it's um it, it's good to see that coming back because i have a very particular type of electronic music that i will listen to and it's basically apex twin or the prodigy and you know some kind of dark sort of i don't know like, or, or tech or techra and boards of canada and more kind of ambient stuff and um it's nice to sort of hear things that are a bit more um just kind of gritty sounding like yeah. I kind of like electronic music uh it got a bit nice for you know it got a bit americanized and a bit nice throughout the 2010s and it's nice to hear it kind of coming back down to more sort of gritty terrains i think no definitely definitely yeah but great album absolutely great album. i hadn't listened to that in years so i'm, I'm glad you brought that in andy and it, the next album you've you've mentioned already is uh know you by rainbow grave so this is a great choice so this is um some legends of the birmingham cross punk scene doing some new music came out in july 2019 so it's nick bullen uh formerly of napalm death and john pickering aka johnny doom of kerrang radio fame uh who actually sent me this before it came out back in the day so i haven't listened to it for a little while but johnny i'm quite I'm, I'm i'm pretty good acquaintances with johnny he's a he's a top dude and he sent me this and he was like oh mate give us you know give 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 my band a listen nothing sort of like i'll promote my band or really he just was like what do you reckon of this and i'd never really listened to doom before back in the day and i knew johnny had been in this but i really knew him just as the dj of kerrang radio and he sent me this and it's fucking great this record oh, fucking amazing. great yeah <laughs> yeah um so yeah go for it like when, when did you first hear this well it was um i, I quite, bought quite a few records on the god unknown label because there's some really really good records on god unknown and it came out on god unknown and I looked in their band camp and before i even knew that, that johnny or nick were involved i liked the description of it and it said it was like um glue sniffing headache punk and um the very first track on it, you know, <laughs> it just starts off at such a crawling pace. And then Nick just has this list of things in his life that he hates. But they've got like all the lead guitar sounds deranged. It's all when they bend notes, they don't bend them quite in tune. The effects that they use sound like they've kind of overmodulated it a little bit and not really care. That there's there's like the fuzz is just they put a bit too much fuzz on everything. <laughs> but it but it is brilliant and it's it, it kind of doesn't make any concessions. Then at no point do they lift the song when they feel it needs to lift. It's all just, I find it, in the best sense of the word, truly psychedelic. I find it a truly psychedelic record because the way it's been put together, it keeps the same style the whole way through it. So the guitars are always gnarled, twisted. The lyrics are always very kind of, I don't know, um, very sp spiteful and resigned. It kind of, I think this whole album, it's the sound of, and I've been in this situation myself, so I'm talking experience, 
a Saturday night, sat in front of the telly with a case of beer and a bottle of whiskey alone. You know, that's <laughs> what this record yeah. says to me when there's a, when you're at a point in your life and you wish you weren't at that point, but you're actually quite enjoying wallowing in the self-misery and the degradation that you're putting yourself through. Mm. And it's the riffs are brilliant too. I mean, the riffs are amazing. There's one track on it called um, Brain Sick, which reminds me a lot of... I really like uh, Chrome. There's a band called Chrome, and like an old punk band, and they were like Hawkwind meets Black Sabbath meets Black Flag. And a lot of this record reminds me of a 21st century version of Chrome. Um, it's It just whistles and it pops and it creaks and it crackles the whole way through it. And it was one of those records where I evangelized about it. The minute I heard it and got it, I, I downloaded it and I bought a vinyl copy of it. And then I got in touch with the lads in the band. And then anyone I met, I said, you've got to hear this. You know, anyone that I knew. And it wasn't for everybody, you know, uh, the lads in the band like it, but a lot of people went, oh, God, this is a bit much, you know. It's, but I just think it's one of the best records it made in the last 15, 20 years. It's so fucking phenomenally intense. And I think when you get people from, um, you know, it's really heartening to hear kind of elder statesmen of heavy music still be. I mean, you know, we reviewed the new Metallica album last week on the podcast. It's fine, but it doesn't sound like it doesn't have the energy and the fire of and and nor should you expect it to have because these are 60 year old millionaires but probably even Lars is probably a billionaire at this point with all these selling his art or whatever so you know you you can't really you shouldn't really expect that but when you get a band like this and you get kind of elder statesmen from the scene and you just think this sounds horrible like absolutely horrible and I love you know that kind of that like you say the 80s hardcore but just produced and fuzzed up to like antagonistic levels it's just such a brilliantly antagonistic record um you know uh love suicide pyramid i mean not only is a great name for a song is fucking just a great song and i think as well you know putting in those um brassy parts on year zero as well again like those kind of discordant brass bits yeah, after, well. after dead neanderthals that sort of noise sax band from the yeah, yeah yeah it's just horrible sounding um here's here's the thing that i actually so on that kind of motif um i was listening to an interview with damien uh from the band fucked up the canadian punk band fucked up and he was saying that you know he felt that he was like All right well i like such extreme stuff that I'll always be cool. Kids will always think I'm cool because I like this, you know, the most extreme, noisy, heavy, brutal music. And he sort of plays it to his kids and his kids are like, this isn't cool. Like we want, you know, nice melodic music, you know. And and it, do you think we've reached a point where a kind of my generation, the gener your, your generation, the bands we liked and stuff, they were just so noisy that now kids are like, well, I don't want to, if I'm to kind of reject what my parents like, I'm actually going to go and listen to something really sort of nice, like Lizzo or something. Do you know what I mean? Something really nice sounding. It feels like we've kind of plateaued. We can't really get any noisier or heavier. Yeah. I'm wondering if it's, I mean, I, I know exactly what you mean. My 24 year old son, he's a into electronic music uh, and I'll play him occasionally stuff that I like. And he's, he's always very constructive in it, but it's something like rock music, he said, has too much mid-range. And initially I thought that's a strange thing to say. You know, he, he sort of makes bits and pieces himself. But I can understand there's a certain harshness to records like Big Black and Shellac and, and Rainbow Grave, and, and certainly some like early 80s hardcore. 
that I'm just thinking with production values are so sharp now and people are just, even when they hear rock music, when you hear something that's so in your face, it sounds like a lot of static. Does it resonate the same with kids now that have grown up with, you know, this pristine digital recordings? I, I'm always kind of hoping that somewhere around the corner, there'll be a kind of a new wave of no wave or something like that with a bunch of young kids getting really excited about kind of noise rock or whatever. Mm. But I, don't, I haven't seen it yet. And a lot of noise rock seems to be made by people that are kind of mid thirties upwards. You know what I mean? Yeah. You've got bands like Mets and stuff like that. But I think, um, it's i wonder i wonder if it's a peculiar age thing i'm really really hoping there will be a band of young kids come along one day and make this kind of face melting kind of acerbic noise rock i think do you hear the uh the chat pile album that came out last year yes i like that yeah i do like yeah. that i mean it's a different sort of thing but i don't know how old they are i mean it's certainly incredibly intense and they you know we've got a pretty good review and pitchfork and it feels like they sort of crossed over to people that maybe wouldn't usually listen to that sort of thing a little bit but it's yeah it's hard to know i think you know kids you, you just young people I, I suppose i did it you know my my dad liked the who and the jam and so i was like well i like napalm death fuck you yeah. dad. do you know what i mean like that's sort of what happened for years and years and years and then we got to that point where you reached napalm death and you went well you can't really get any heavier than that so you're kind of going to have to go back in the opposite direction but yeah it would be it would be lovely to see like a bunch of kind of teenagers making really really heavy music i don't know how old chat pile are but um yeah i don't know either i mean a lot of i like i like the record and it's it's kind of like uh there's bits of gothic and alternative rock in it as well which maybe leavens the, the bitterness of it for some people mm. but it is great yeah but it's it's very much of that um it was Michael told me about them actually because he knew he knows the kind of stuff I listen to at home, and he said you might like this band. But, uh, yeah, yeah but I don't. But I don't know anyone young likes Chatpile. Anyone I don't <laughs> like Chatpile's my age. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Actually, that is true. So I don't know. No matter how old they are, I mean, weird if they're a bunch of eighteen-year-olds with a load of forty-year-old men turning up to their gigs. But yeah, um, Rainbow Grave are great. If you haven't heard it and you're into the sort of thing that we've just been talking about, and you've never. Um, picked up on this band they are brilliant um chances are uh, many of you will have heard this next pick uh, andy has gone for zen arcade by husker do second album from the melodic hardcore band although there's a little bit less melody on this one i suppose uh released on the 4th of july 1984 as i understand it husker do just a massive band for you right well, that was it came this is kind of going on from what i said earlier about unknown pleasures this came at a point in my life when I, my taste of music needed shaken up and i'd gone from liking punk into post-punk so it was like joy division gang of four mm -hmm. i got really really into early rem they released an album called murmur that i absolutely caned whenever it came out and then the follow-up reckoning and i liked it because it was kind of obscure 60s jangly music as if it was played in this kind of college kid fog it was, it was really enigmatic mm. you couldn't make out the lyrics the melodies were there you had to lean into the record to kind of hear the guitar riffs, but that's what made it exciting they, they looked like just regular people jeans and t-shirts there was no kind of manifesto behind them but i read an so i got really into those albums and i read an interview and it was in an NME magazine where peter buck and mick mills were talking about i can't remember the name of the feature it was something they had every week where you talk about your favorite artists your favorite movies and your favorite books and they basically said uh, a list of what they were listening to. It was Minutemen, Black Flag, and Husker Du. And I heard Black Flag because my, my brother that was slightly younger than me was really into Black Flag and he used to borrow his records. Minutemen I kind of knew from hearing a couple of tracks. 
but Husker had never heard. And I went into a place called Carline Music in Ann Street in Belfast, which is where I bought all my records. They they would get you anything you wanted. And Angus, the guy that he was like our John Peel, he was this kind of guy in his late thirties, early forties, this wizard kind of guy. And we said to him, "Have you heard like Zen Arcade?" And he was like, "He had a Husker Du section." And I said, "What one should I get?" Or sorry, what so what one should I get? What Husker Du should I get? And he went, "I get Zen Arcade." So I got it, took it home, put it on, played it. And the first time I played it, I thought, I'm not really sure. I love the way it sounds. And people had told me it was really melodic. So I think I was expecting Ramones or something like that. You know what I mean? But I couldn't couldn't stop listening to it because the drums, the sound of the drums were like a jazz record. It was really sort of thin. Listen to it again. And then listen to it again. Then I realized it, it was one of those things I talked about earlier on, like with untrue and with unknown pleasures. It was a journey. So I cannot listen to that record. I have to start at the, the beginning and listen to it the whole way through the end. And I couldn't stop. I noticed that during the day, things like the, the chorus from Pink Turns Blue, Turn On The News, something I learned today, they would all pop into my head the way the regular pop earworm would. So I began to think, this is pop music. This is like classic 60s pop music performed by a hardcore punk band and recorded in what's, I mean, I think they recorded the whole thing in three days or something like that, you know, on speed, which it sounds like now. I don't know that in retrospect, but that kind of got me totally into it. And I went back to Carline Music the next day and bought Metal Circus, bought New Day Rising, you know what I mean? Bought all the records that had come before that, a land speed record. Mm. But that, that is the one to me that I can't listen to just one track. And it, it was a big influence on my, my guitar playing when I started playing the guitar. So I think that's why as well, I learned quite a lot from Bob Mould in those early days. Yeah, I mean, Husker Du are, weirdly, I would say for me, they're a, a, a little bit of a blind spot in my music. I mean, Candy Apple Grey, I remember hearing and, and getting after, um, so I heard Sugar. I heard Copper Blue by Sugar was the first Bob Mould thing that I heard. And again, you know, regular listeners to the podcast will know it's absolutely, you know, one of my favourite albums. I absolutely love that. And that is, you know, super duper melodic. And when we talk about, you know, we've reviewed the last couple of Bob Mould records on here. And I love the kind of very, very kind of um, alt-rock Beach Boys of Bob Bob Mould's solo stuff. I love that. And... um, but every time I go back to the kind of early Husker Du, like you say, it's so noisy and the drums are so, and it's so kind of careering that I almost feel like I'm, those Bob Mould-isms, that kind of Mouldian melody, that kind of just natural ear for melody that that guy has, it's there. But I always find myself like really going, oh, I've got to lean in a bit more because yeah. it's so much faster. It's so much harsh, harsher sounding. And, you know, I, I think this is a, a very, very good album. Like, some of those songs that you say are, are catchy as fuck, but it's weird because I feel like a bit of a, um, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit of a, you know, like a kind of a, a basic bitch as some people say, because I just go, oh, I like the, I like the really, really poppy stuff from Bob Mould. And I, I don't go to Zen Arcade that often, funnily enough, although listening back to it the last couple of days, it's got, it's got earworms. It's just like total brilliant earworms. I mean, um, Charter Trips was one of the songs that I was like, I just absolutely yeah. fucking yeah. love that song. It's so great. And, you know, bits of piano in there as well. And it, and you sort of go, 1984 for a hardcore band. I mean, again, we're going to talk about another hardcore band in a minute who kind of ripped up the rule book of just being a pure hardcore band. It's a really, really clearly a very influential and um, 
and very very good record it's just not one that i listen to that much to be honest and i feel like a bit of a simpleton sort of sitting here and going i don't really listen to i normally go for copper blue if i'm gonna go to bob mold i'd almost go for solo stuff or or you know sugar more than i do for husker do i don't know if that makes me like a you know a sellout poser or something like that no, but those, those records are really powerful i could completely understand that i mean i i got in this n arcade and what it was for me was, was the second gateway so i was going down this post-punk path got into craft work electronica and i'd completely forgotten about guitar music my younger brother he was totally in the uk 82 so it was discharge amoebix fucks of pink indians and black flag and minor threat and then i got into zen arcade and all of a sudden through that i started buying more noise rock records so like i would look at stuff that was on homestead i got atomizer for big black uh, i knew that husker do kind of did shows occasionally with sonic youth so get into sonic youth so completely whenever i thought i mean this is i was 19 years of age when this came out so i kind of thought i was over guitars and then all of a sudden there was buying tons of guitar records again and these were the records that then became formative in therapy whenever i met fife the drummer he was into husker do sonic youth big black tad and that was what we had in common. So I think really I've got Husker do a lot to thank for ending up where I did with the band. Um, and that record, I just spent so much time with it. You know, if I play it to anyone else, the majority of people just go, it's very harsh, you know, it's badly recorded, the drums sound terrible. But it's like an old friend, you know, I can't see fault in it because I spent so much time with it. Yeah, it is. It is a, it's a really great record. It's just one that, you know, it's one of those things that you listen to this and you think, God, this is so influential. But I mean, when you consider that you can easily, like you just mentioned, draw a line between, it's a, and it's a pretty short line. It's not even six degrees of separation between Husker Du and Nevermind. And when you think of how massive Nevermind was, you listen to this, and I think that's kind of, again, to kind of be that guy who wangs on about how great the 90s was. For an album like this to inspire something which ended up being as big as, you know, Nevermind and... I guess you could even go into, you know, talking about screaming trees and therapy and helmet and, you know, sugar and all of those amazing things that happened in the nineties that came from this just quite just noisy sort of wiry, poorly recorded, horrible sounding, but like ultimately rough diamond of a record. It's pretty incredible really, isn't it? To think of the impact they had. And it was aesthetics as well. I mean, I must, point out that one of the most important things to us whenever we discovered Husker Du was whenever we being from the north of Ireland during the troubles whenever therapy started there was hardly anywhere to play and then back in those days you either had to sound and look like you two or sound and look like Guns N' Roses so nobody in a band looked like R.E.M. or Husker Du because Husker Du didn't look like a band you'd get a slightly chubby guy you've got the the guy on drums that was like a hippie and then the guy with the handlebar moustache that wasn't Slash and Axel, you know what I mean? And I think there was that thing when to be in a band, you got to look like you're in a band. And then along comes R.E.M., the Minutemen, bands on SST records. And all of a sudden, this chubby guy from Belfast, a skinny guy with little round glasses and a really tall, taciturn drummer. We think, well, you know what? We can be in a band too, because mm. if other people can look like that. And that was, that was a really, really helpful to us. And I think that's where the gateway then led to Nirvana. Because you had all these bands that came along on SST and on Homestead and bands that were in the Pacific Northwest that kind of looked like people from little towns. <laughs> that yeah. they, there was no glamour to them. And I think that steamrollered and it, it did end up obviously in Nevermind being a big hit. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, Zen Arcade by Husker Du, obviously hugely influential for that time. Another album and your final album, your final pick, which 
I, I mean, the, the influence of this record, I think, has been spoken about a very specific thing and time um, that this inspired. My War by Black Flag. So it's Black Flag's second full-length album, released in March 1984. Can't find the exact date. Um, very, very different from Damaged. Uh, very different indeed. And, you know, again, what we were just talking about, the influence of Black Flag going through Seattle and playing songs from this record uh, has been spoken about and rightly so for you know years and years and years and years um why this particular black flag album for you andy well the possibilities of hardcore now i mentioned earlier my younger brother so after i got zen arcade somebody said to me oh, do you like black flag and my brother likes it. i said what do you think of my war you might like that actually because i like cats and i think i like cat and beef heart quite a lot and even some of the guitars are quite out there and i went my war that's six pack and you know but anyway, and they went, no, no. So I went and asked my brother. I said, oh, have you got my warning? No, I didn't get it. I wanted to say they've grown their hair long and they're all, they're all heavy metal now. <laughs> and he, that was it. That was his, he, he stopped listening to Black Flag because they've gone heavy metal. And I was expecting to kind of hear Tigers of Pantang or something like that. I wouldn't have been on. So I kind of went in back to Carline Music and I loved the cover. The cover's amazing. Mm. And I sort of thought, should whatever an album cost us, I should have buy this or should have buy something else. And I thought, fuck, it's on SST, and I bought it, took it home. And it was like side one was okay, right? You know, the, the opening tracks, one of the best things they've ever done. It's got this kind of out there, almost like sort of John Coltrane-esque uh, guitar <laughs> flying off all over the shop. And this really bizarre, like this, I mean, you, you come on, you're like, my war, I think this is brilliant. And then there's kind of I Love You, which is like a piss take of pop culture. And I thought, well, it's kind of muddy sound and black flag that I know. But it was side two which everyone always talks about. When I put that on, first of all, it was like, my God, it sounds like all of side two sounds like somebody trying to get out of a straight jacket. And just where I was in my life at that point in time, after Zen, after Zen Arcade, this was just so cathartic. And it was so powerful. And I would get in, I would talk to people about Black Flag and I would either get people like Fife in the band or Michael, oh yeah, it's amazing, or other punkers that I knew going, oh my God, it's, it's terrible, they've gone metal. But it was it was like such a um, nothing left inside. It's again why I probably like bands like Rainbow Grave. It uses repetition. Now repetition and riffs, I think, is such a hard thing to get right. Loop can do it. Sabbath can do it. Hawkwind can do it. But if you get it wrong, it sounds boring. If you have a really powerful riff and you play it again, and again, and again, and again, it can become like a ritual and it can become hypnotic, or it can be just it sounds like you've run out of ideas. And on side two of my war, it's just, oh my God, it's like Armageddon of the head. It's it's incredible. And like just, I mean, the, the last two tracks on the record, Three Nights and Scream, both of them sound with the bass drum just going like that, which sounds like someone banging their head against the wall. But they've done it with two, two consecutive tracks. And the guitars, they, they sound diseased. There's a bit on, um, on like, I think it's Nothing Left Inside, where it's, it's like uh, another way I can describe Greg's Guinness. Greg Guinness guitar sound like a dying horse. It's you know, <laughs> <laughs> but it was again. It's it's that headphone record, and it's it's strange to say. There's two records from that era that I would only listen to side two, and one of them is My War, um, and the other one is uh, it's side one or side two. The other one's songs about fucking the big black, where I think it's oh, side okay. one's really good. I think it's side one's really good, but it's like. Um, when you only listen to one side or the the void faith split which 
punk aficionados will know from years ago. But my war, it's like, yeah, I'll listen to the whole album, love the title track, but it's side two where the kind of real magic happens. Yeah, I mean, the the title track is an iconic song, definitely. Um, It's just so fucking bleak. I mean, this is such a bleak record. I mean, Rollins sounds unhappy throughout the entire thing. And whereas in Damaged, he's like attacking the police and he's attacking TV and popular culture and stuff. I think you listen to this and he's so, like you say, so internalised, you know, on a song like Can't Decide, like the, the painting on you know, I smile and all that kind of stuff. And it's mad to think that there's a three year period between damaged and then they become this. And then they release, you know, like in the same year, they release family man and slip it in. I think it's fair to say that's a mixed bag of a year. Right. That's a mixed bag of the year. And this is definitely the, the best one. I mean, I, the swinging man's actually my favorite song on it. Although I do think, um, I mean, you mentioned three nights. I think, it just sounds like a broken hue. Everybody sounds like they have reached the end of their tether by that point. Like they are just like mentally, physically broken, exhausted. It's hard work, this record, but best Black Flag album? I think it might be. Oh, by Miles is my favourite Black Flag album by Miles. Absolutely. And I just think the whole thing is just so influential. But for me at the time, it's like, it's compelling. The whole thing is it's compelling and it's like i find it i it's an album like all the albums i've mentioned on this list i feel better when i've listened to them all i don't know whether that says anything about the material or whether it's cathartic or whatever but when i listen to the end of black flag i don't feel depressed when i listen to the end of side two of my war i come out of it and feel as if i've been almost cleansed in a way if that doesn't sound too pretentious no no not at all i get exactly what you mean yeah i love it it's like it's 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 a hard place to be in but it's a it's a a, a beautiful thing to achieve i think you get to the end of this record and you know you feel like you've i don't know you just feel like you've really done something you feel like you've really kind of felt something i think it's like like i i really like damaged i think it's and obviously it's a classic it's an absolute classic those songs are the, some of the most iconic punk songs but i don't think you i don't think you feel them in the same way as you like actually kind of you're put through the ringer on my war you're actually you kind of are dragged into it i think you can kind of listen to you know twenty five thousand six pack to my name go yeah six pack and you can just sort of like bang your head or whatever and you can you can you can kind of switch off a bit as good as those songs are i think you are just dragged in whether you like it or not to this you are immersed in 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 my war from the first second of it and like you say the whole way through it just gets more and more warped and broken and beaten down and chaotic and yeah it's and then at the end you sort of go whoa that was that was a hell of a thing to go through you know it was great it's like sitting in a the hot sauna for an hour you know it's like amazing yeah I, I i i love this record i just i just absolutely love this record i think it's it's definitely my favorite black flag record for that reason yeah it requires commitment which i think quite a few records that we've talked about but those records where you're in for the long haul and but that's how i enjoy listening to music and i think you know Obviously, you can read different things into it and the record, and but by all intents and purposes, when you read any history of the making of this album, it was quite a fraught time as well for all the band involved, and everyone was exhausted, everyone was skint. You know, the, the band were beginning to pull apart in different ways, and mm-hmm. and Greg Ginn ended up playing the bass because they couldn't get a bass player for it either. So it was, yeah. But it, I just think what what a phenomenal work work. Yeah, 
Do you think, is there any of this stuff that comes after this to kind of loosen up, slip it in, family man? Um, in my head, I quite in like In my head? But, it's, yeah. but what for me, I always judge it by whenever I listen to the stuff of those later albums, I prefer the verse. There's a live album called Who's Got the Ten and a Half. Yeah, it's great. And all the versions of Loose Knot and In My Head that are on that album are far superior to the album versions. There's too many overdubs on the album versions and it's got a lot of reverb on it and it's all bitsy. And Family Man's got quite, I mean, that's whenever it was trying to be, he's trying to be Bukowski, I think. And some of it's all right and some of it's a little bit, you know, I don't really get, but there, you know, I, I think I think In My Head and Loose Knot um, are okay. But um, the live versions of all that material is way, way better. Modern Man's a great song, you know, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. Um, five albums. Good picks, Andy. Very, very good. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, it's always a pleasure. I mean, last time you were on, you were talking about football. So uh, I'm just going to ask you very quickly before you go. Happy, happy to have Frank Lampard back at Chelsea? Well, <laughs> I'm happy to have him back. I mean, it couldn't, it couldn't really get any worse. So, I mean, it's glad to have well, him back. Well, you say that. I mean, he has lost four. As we record, he's lost four in four. I mean... Yeah. I can't really see at the minute I can't really see many more victories towards the end of the season we've got Man City Man United Newcastle to play among those teams I mean uh, so if we can't beat if we can't beat uh, Southampton at home <laughs> you've got to beat as a Portsmouth supporter oh, you beat Southampton you, have, you well, make, you're not going to have to are you so you know you're going to make the playoffs do you reckon this year absolutely not no 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 seven, seven. you've still get 15 points but I think uh, you're about get, five points behind Derby aren't you we're seven points out of the playoffs with three games left so we're uh, so it's not going to happen and I'm glad it's not going to happen because we would embarrass ourselves in the playoffs if we got Barnsley or Ipswich or Sheffield Wednesday we would absolutely embarrass ourselves because we've been atrocious this year absolutely atrocious anyway that that's more depressing than my war watching the <laughs> season ticket of Ratton Park is way more depressing than any of the music we've spoken about today trust me um, anyway Andy it's been lovely to have you on mate good luck with the new album both Thank of them you. and um we will hopefully speak again very soon. I hope so, mate. Thanks very much. No worries, man. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much to Andy for coming on the show. Always appreciate having him on. He is great. Therapy's new album, Hardcore Fire, comes out next week. And Gaz Jones of the Track One Side One podcast will be joining me to review it. And they're his favourite band, so he's probably going to be pretty nice about it, I would assume. But hey... It's not making it to therapy album, so it probably is just going to be really good, right? Yeah, anyway, thanks very much for listening, guys. Much appreciated. We'll probably be talking about Gabrielle's album, maybe Ennis Shikari next week, maybe everything about the girl as well. We'll do a big load of reviews with Gaz. Um, I'll chuck in the national, obviously, as well. And a few other things, maybe, but therapy will probably be the one that I want, want to do first. Big shout out to Andy um, and uh, and Harris, who is their PR for sorting that out for us. That little chat. Cheers, buddy. I'll speak to you soon about some other people you've got coming in. That's very nice of you. As for you guys listening, please go over to patreon.com forward slash true cult pop and you can sign up for the exclusive content that is coming out there. There will be some exclusive content, even if it's just me rambling away like this. So we shouldn't be too much of that, to be honest, because I'll tell you what, it's pretty exhausting. It's pretty exhausting just talking on your own. I'm not going to lie. It's actually harder. You don't. You know, I've got no sound to bounce off. I've got to bounce off my own shiny head. Anyway, thanks very much for listening, guys. We'll see you next week. Cheers. Bye-bye.